Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 51 of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm here today with Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, Nathan. And Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, everyone. So, folks, um, I'm really excited to share the interview we have today uh, yeah. with sociologist, um, critical race theorist, Victor Ray, uh, who is actually not a sports-focused scholar, and that's okay, as far as I'm concerned, uh, because Victor has incredible insight on the ways in which race operates um, in our societies, and you know that goes for sports. That's the point. It goes for sports too, and we don't always have to have a sport-centric perspective if we want to sort of theorize a phenomenon like racialized organizations. In fact, we can think about that more broadly and then think about how it applies in the context of sport. And that's kind of what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, and again, for me, this is one of the most interesting conversations we've had. So I, I can't wait to share it with you. But there are a couple other things we want to share with you as well, uh, because we have been... Um, doing some more work trying to combat the just disgraceful uh, world of college football that we are, as you all well know, we are continuing to sort of wage war with this uh, summer and fall. And in that vein, we have a couple other pieces that came out last week, uh, one in The Baffler, where we uh, tell you very plainly how we feel about it all. And uh, one in Time Magazine, where we again talk to some athletes um, and try to to disclose the perspective that we just aren't seeing in the mainstream media, which is chock full of um, the we want to play movement and athletes consenting and, you know, like just everyone rah, rah football. Um, we we always want to shine a light on the fact that there are a lot of stories that don't get told because it's very dangerous for players to tell the truth about how they feel about being forced to play football during a pandemic. Um, and so we've been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to speak with some of those players um, privately, uh, and they've shared with us their fears um, and the, the challenges they've been confronting this summer and fall. And, and that's what we've tried to share with everyone uh, in these pieces. So we'd really appreciate it if you check them out and if you share them, uh, because folks, like the bottom line is we cannot be subjecting unpaid unrepresented athletic workers to a pandemic that inflicts not only the possibility of death, but certainly long-term complications um, that we really have, we have no idea what this is gonna look like in five years, but we have plenty of evidence to suggest that people are gonna be suffering long-term from their experiences with, with COVID. And it's just not acceptable that we subject athletes to these conditions. And as always, if you appreciate what we're doing, please let us know, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Um, shout out at us at Instagram or Twitter, where our handles are at end of sport for both platforms. Um, let us know what you're liking about the podcast. Let us know if something really resonates you or if it connects with your own work and your teaching. We really, really love to hear about how people are using our work. Uh, we want to know that what we're doing is useful and that we're not sort of just kind of shouting at the three of us and, and sort of whoever our guest is at every episode episode. Um, also, you can email us at uh, theendofsport at gmail.com. We also have an amazing website that um, Derek very kindly put together for us that is can be found at www.theendofsport.com. And uh, we really hope that you enjoy this wonderful show.
Victor Ray is assistant professor of sociology at the University of Iowa. His influential work on race and organizations has appeared in scholarly journals such as the American Sociological Review, American Behavioral Scientist, Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, Contexts, Ethnic and Racial Studies, The Journal of Marriage and Family, Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, and Sociological Theory. Uh, just a few there for you. His public scholarship appears in venues as well, such as the Washington Post, Newsweek, and Boston Review. Uh, Victor, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Listen, so the first thing we want to ask you, like we ask everyone, how are you surviving 2020 in Iowa City, Iowa? Uh, I do not have coronavirus and I am employed. Uh, everyone in my family is healthy and my immediately fa immediate family is healthy. So I am doing okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that's a totally, a totally understandable answer. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, listen, we have so much to talk about today. And we're going to kind of cover a lot of different ground. This is, I think, a slightly unusual episode for us um, because we're not just talking sports. We're going to talk sports, but there are a lot of other things we want to talk to Victor about as well, including, uh, I hope, in the back half of the episode today, a little bit of ground around the election and U.S. politics, given that that is what so many of us are thinking about right now. Um, and we're also going to talk a lot about race, racism, critical race theory, and organizational theory. So some academic subjects, because um, that is Victor's area of expertise. And I think that his really fascinating insights there give us a lot to think about then when we apply those concepts in the context of sport. Um, so that's what we really want to accomplish here today. So let's start with the fundamentals um, of racism and organizational theory and Victor's critical intervention of bringing those both together. Before we get to that, though, and to, to Victor's specific intervention around racialized organizations, I think it's probably really useful for our listeners to hear a little bit about the sort of foundation of understanding what actually organizational theory is, in a nutshell, and also the core tenets of critical race theory, which has become one of the sort of bogeymen of our time, along with cultural Marxism um, and whatever else. So, Victor, could you just lay out for us sort of what, what is critical race theory and what is organizational theory? Okay. Um, so, both of these. Fields. I just want to start by saying both these fields are pretty big, so whatever I say is going to be necessarily uh, condensed. Uh, but critical race theory is a body of scholarship that arose to explain why the gains of the civil rights movement had stalled and in some cases reversed. Uh, a group of legal scholars, including uh, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Richard Delgado got together um, and they came up with some propositions uh, to explain why uh, the civil rights gains had stalled. Um, and so some of those propositions were things like racism is structural and embedded in the law. Uh, racial progress is not automatic. Um, race is a social construction and uh, intersectionality and that people of color are capable of explaining um, what they've experienced or their own experiences with race and racism in the U.S. Um, organizational theory is a body of scholarship that tries to explain uh, how organization arise, how organizations arise, uh, what organizations do, and how they shape society. Uh, it's pretty central to sociology. And people study all kinds of things, uh, everything from what it takes to form an organization 
how people interact in different kinds of organizations and why organizations that do similar things uh, start to look the same. Um, and as far as critical race theory becoming a cultural boogeyman, um, I think that's because the current administration is threatened by accurate descriptions of racial reality. Uh, critical race theory tries to explain the causes and consequences of racial inequality. And I think uh, it's pretty clear that this administration has used and stoked racial tension as a sort of explicit strategy, um, both to divide people, to get votes, to rally their base for a whole bunch of different reasons. So I think accurately describing that uh, is threatening to the administration in the same way that accurately describing uh, their response to the coronavirus or their response to global warming is threatening to the, the administration. Uh, it accurately describes a reality that they use to sort of entrench their power uh, and that they fear accurate descriptions of how they're using that power could undermine it. Uh, so, yeah, I also think that we need to contextualize um, the sort of attacks on critical race theory as uh, part of a longer movement of folks who are who are opposed broadly to racial inequality. Um, and this is just an extension of that. This is not necessarily something new. We're we're definitely going to, I think, get to the current administration in the in the um, sort of second half of this episode. And I really am looking forward <clears throat> to getting your thoughts on the sort of current administration's role uh, in a variety of these um, uh, of these issues. But I'd like to turn to um, your your recently published, well, relatively recently published and groundbreaking um, article, a, a theory of uh, racialized organizations that was. Um, came out last year, I believe, in, in ASR and the American Sociological Review. In it, you uh, quote, and I'm quoting now, you um, challenge the implicit whiteness of organizational theory, um, which sort of espouses this veneer of neutrality. I'm, I'm no longer quoting. It, it sort of espouses this veneer of neutrality to promote in-group-based interests um, and argues that Racial inequality is, is, quote, not merely in organizations, but of them. And I've, I thought as a sociologist that this was particularly powerful um, of a statement. And, and I'd like to get to have you kind of walk our listeners through and, and describe what you mean by this. In other words, how are organizations racial structures? And what does it mean to say um, quote, I define race not as a thing, but as a relationship between persons mediated through things. Okay, there's a lot in that question. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get through it all. Okay. So when I say that race is not merely in organizations, but of them, uh, I mean that in the US, racialized social relationships shape the likelihood of starting an organization, uh, the likelihood that an organization is going to survive, who's likely to get a job or become a member of an organization, where a person is likely to end up in an organizational hierarchy, and how organizations distribute resources. So, for instance, this is not in my paper, but I'm drawing on the work of some uh, folks who recently did a report in High Country News. And I was, I was 
shocked by this report, um, but it shows how large portions of the American higher educational system are built on proceeds uh, from stolen land, right? And so they did this report on the Morrill Act, and the Morrill Act took land from Native Americans, and it sold it to fund the endowments uh, for land-grant universities all over the U.S., including places like MIT, the University of Massachusetts, Iowa State. Um, and so this is a clear transfer of wealth from Native Americans to fund the American higher educational system in ways that um, are still being played out today, right? So it was a, a shift of resources um, that was based on the exploitation of Native Americans. Uh, and if you look at the contemporary demographics of these schools, Native Americans by and large still are not benefiting from this huge shift of resources. We could say similar things about the uh, many Ivy League schools and other schools that were built on proceeds from slavery. So Brown University, uh, Yale, Harvard, all have deep ties to racialized slavery. And again, if you look at the demographics from those schools, um, the, the organization, parts of the organization were necessity, were built on deeply unequal racialized relations, uh, that still, you can still see in the structure of how the organization is run. And in the case of the land grant, um, some of those universities still hold parcels of land that they received under the land grant that they have not yet sold. And some of them still have parts of their endowment, um, you know, that are direct proceeds from this. So these are relations that are not by any means history or not by any means um, not impacting how organizations function today, right? Organizations, these organizations were dependent upon it. Um, I also think when I say that it's of organizations, not just in organizations. Lots of organizations are highly segregated, right? And uh, when you look at the distribution of jobs within integrated organizations, people of color still remain clustered at the bottom. Patricia Hill Collins has this quote um, in, a, in a 1992 paper, I believe it is, in which she says that if you look at many mainstream organizations in the US right now, they, their organizational chart still looks like the organizational chart of the antebellum plantation. Um, mm -hmm. And so when I say that something is structural, I'm talking about the connection between ideas of, of culture, right? Racialized ideas about culture, who belongs in which jobs, who's capable of leading an organization and who's capable of cleaning up an organization. And although these relations have transformed somewhat dramatically, there are still, over the course of US history, there are still fundamental continuities, right? Like the, the ones that Patricia Hill Collins points out about most organizational charts looking like the organizational charts of an antebellum plantation. And so that's what I mean when I say that it's a structure, is that it is a, a resilient, long-standing pattern that we can point out that connects ideas about culture and real material resources uh, over the long run, right? And that those are often bigger than any individual racist or individual person who is 
um, even like quite profoundly anti-racist in an organization, right? That those relationships are bigger often than what, what, what one person can do. Um, I also think there's ways that many organizations prey on people of color. So things like subprime loans. Um, and I think all of this, I use all of this in the paper to argue that organizations are not race neutral, right? So if we go back to the distinction between being in an organization or of an organization, when we think about in an organization, I often think about sort of, you know, the standard stock photo of diversity. If you were to Google diversity and Google image diversity and you come up with a stock photo of people of different races, um, that's, that's important. Organizations should be diverse. Uh, but I think that that erases uh, the kinds of entrenched power hierarchies that are important to me and that organizations... Um, you know, used to function. And organizations also legitimate those power hierarchies. They make them seem natural. Um, but I also think a diversity program, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but they show an implicit assumption that organizations are white because the diversity program is taking compensatory action to deal with that longstanding structure. I often think that they're taking compensatory action in, in a way that may not be effective, right? Or is not necessarily getting to the heart of the structure, but it is at least an implicit recognition of the racialized nature or, or the, the unmarked whiteness of a lot of organizations, right? Derek asked the question, but I, I was really curious to hear about uh, that. So that, that was a absolutely fascinating response. Um, and you didn't leave anything out um, because you really covered such an incredible range. But I was just really, really curious about because, you know, as someone um, really interested in the work of Marx and how uh, kind of we can think about uh, racial capitalism and the intersection between race and, and capitalism, your play on Marx with I define race not as a thing, but as a relationship between persons mediated through things, uh, I think is an, is an amazing line. I just I would love to hear you meditate that, on that just a little bit. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really glad you picked up on that line. So the. If we go back for just a second, when I said the tenets of critical race theory, one of the main tenets of critical race theory is that race is a social construction. When you hear people say this, and I would just add, it is widely uh, understood among geneticists and social scientists that race is not a valid biological category, uh, although, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. So when you hear that race is a social construction, people often take that to mean that race isn't real. And I think it's real in the sense that if we attribute meaning and act on the belief that it's real, then we can measure actual outcomes. So when I say that race is a social relationship between persons mediated through things, what I'm trying to get at is how is race social constructed? It's constructed through access to resources. It's constructed through ideas about who we can exploit. Uh, who is exploitable, who is expendable, who should be in a menial position in an organization, and who should be the CEO. And if we think about, you know, there's a large body of scholarship on the historical rise of the modern idea of race. And I'm not going to summarize all of that scholarship here, but I will argue that 
the consensus in that scholarship is that race arose as a modern category of group differentiation as a justification for slavery and colonialism, right? So who gets what? Who has access to resources? Whose resources can be taken, like under the Morrill Act, and used to generate all kinds of resources whose benefits then aren't transferred back to that group. So that's what I mean by it's a social relationship between persons mediated through things, is that race is, lately I've been thinking of it as, as race is an alibi for a crime in progress, right? Race allows people a ready excuse for differential treatment that it's then often blames the very people it is treating differently for the outcomes they are experiencing, right? So you can, there's a lot of ways to think of this, but one way to think of this is um, segregated schooling and underfunded schooling. So we segregate people based on arbitrary racial categories, then at the end of a certain, and we provide them we as American society, broadly speaking, uh, we provide them a whole range of lesser quality resources in terms of teachers, in terms of, uh, you know, per pupil spending, in terms of access to books and technology. And then at the end of that 12 years that they're in school, we measure them through a set of standardized tests that are biased in various ways. And we project sort of their long-term outcomes based on that, right? And there's this whole whole body of scholarship that blames innate characteristics of the group of people that have just been segregated and treated differently for the outcomes of that process, right? And so uh, to me, race is not biological, it's social, and it's about who gets what. Wow. Thank you so much for just really laying all that out for us, both in terms of explaining uh, this really excellent quote from your article, but also just really explaining, like I as the historian on the podcast, I really appreciate your kind of historical understanding as connected to sort of land-grant universities, which I need to read more about personally, but also sort of how um, the U.S. and basically the West sort of like how our university structure um, and sort of culture and academy is built upon racism and like dispossession of land, just like you said, but also like this book that I finally read, Ebony and Ivy by Craig Stephen Wilder this year, just really lays out like how plantation slavery was so, so connected to like raising money for, but also creating universities. And I think you're doing a great job of sort of connecting that to present day circumstances. Because I think for a lot of people, that's, it's hard for people to kind of make that leap. But I think the way you've tied it so well to organizational theory, that really, that really makes a lot of sense. Well, I think, you know, what, one of the things that organizational theory is about is how organizations survive over time, right? And I think, and there's this idea in organizational theory that uh, I need to write about this. I have not written about this very much, but there's this idea of organizational, in organizational theory of imprinting. And that is that an organization is imprinted and carries characteristics of the sort of broader social environment in which it formed. And I think um, if we look at land-grant universities, right, you can, you can see that imprinting um, 
in the demographics, in who gets the benefits. Um, but I don't think organizational theory has dealt with how organizations are racially imprinted by the broader environment. Um, and that's one place I, I am kind of, I kind of want to go in future work um, to talk about that. But yeah, I do think the history of organizations, I, I don't, actually think you can talk about race in American sociology, you can talk about race in American sociology without reading a lot of history. I just don't think it's possible. Well, I am definitely inclined to agree with that. <laughs> but, but I, but I, I, and so I guess what we'd like to do, and maybe this is edging a bit into sort of this future work that you are talking about, which sounds fascinating, um, is, is so could you talk a little bit about how organizations transform and change to protect whiteness and systemic racism. In other words, in your view, how do racialized organizations adapt in ways that promote, produce, and reproduce racial inequality? So there's a number of ways that I can answer this question. I think what I'll do here is talk about audit studies and racial discrimination and what audit studies show. So, and I'm not... Yeah, I can. I can do this. So audit studies are a, a branch or a method in sociology to measure racial discrimination. And I believe it was the National Academies of Science called them the gold standard of measuring discrimination. And what these typically do is they'll send equally matched black and white or white and Latino or black, white and Latino and Asian folks out um, to apply for jobs, to get seated in a restaurant, to get a hotel room, to uh, get on a bus. There was a recent one with people trying to get on a bus for free. Uh, and these, I told my students, these always find the same thing. They always find kind of rampant discrimination against people of color. There was a good one recent, there was a good one not that long ago. Good meaning the findings were terrible, but a well done study. Um, on Airbnb showing discrimination against black renters on Airbnb. Um, and so these, these studies show that discrimination in businesses or in organizations doesn't necessarily rely on the old kind of Jim Crow, uh, you know, signs that would say, we're not hiring black folks, we're not, you know, uh, you don't need that that subtle kinds of discrimination can be just as, if not more effective in upholding uh, the, in upholding sort of white supremacy with a small w in organizations, right? So like not explicit white supremacists in the sense of um, the Klan or the alt-right, but white supremacy in the sense of control of organizational resources and access to jobs uh, without any of the more blatant, uh, blatant exclusion, right? So that's one way. Another way is um, a lot of organizations, um, you know, I think some of this depends on what we say by integration, what we mean when we say integration. So 
Um, both there's research on schooling from folks like Karen Lacey and Amanda Lewis and John Diamond that looks at how schools transformed in the wake of the civil rights movement. And some schools did integrate. And then in response to integration, they had uh, internal tracking, right? And so what that means is uh, many more white students end up in honors and AP courses. Black students end up in regular or special education courses, and you replicate internally the kinds of between organization segregation that occurred under Jim Crow, right? So you developed a new system with very similar outcomes. And if you take sort of a blunt measure of the school, you're going to say that's an integrated school. Black and white kids are going to get going to school together. It's great, right? We've we've solved the problem. Um, there's, uh, you know, Sharon Collins has work also showing a similar process with um, diversity, diversity management in corporations. A lot of corporations in response to the civil rights movement would hire folks, hired folks of color into positions that were cordoned off you know, they were diversity HR positions. So they were cordoned off from the main functions of the organization. And it meant that if you were on the diversity track, your ability to move up in the organization was very, very constrained relative to other folks who came in on tracks for, I mean, forgive this, this sort of blunt language, but the real work of the organization, right? So I think there's a number of ways that organizations have shifted or can shift. Um, I mean, then, you know, you have smaller ways like changing the requirements for a job uh, that could, you know, differentially benefit one group over another. So I think there's a lot of ways that organizations can or do shift uh, in ways that maintain white dominance. Um but don't run afoul of the law, right? Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, I think our listeners at this point can see why Victor <laughs> is our guest on the show today, uh, because this is just really a, an absolute masterful discussion of so much that I think we all need to be thinking about, no matter what our area of focus. Um, and it's, I think, self-evident that at this at this point that there are so many lessons to be gleaned in the world of sport when we start to think about racialized organizations and the way that Victor's laying out. Now, I, I don't want to provide a caveat just for Victor's sake. Victor is an absolute authority on this subject. Um, sport is not his area. So we are putting him on the spot here, but you can see why we're doing that because who else would we want to have a conversation like this with? Um, but I, I want to say yeah. that to be fair because no one, Victor is not claiming and no one's claiming that he's a sports expert, but I think he has things to tell us that are really valuable about sport from the standpoint that he's laid out. So we're going to segue now into to that sort of sporting conversation. Um, and so what I want to ask you, Victor, is how might you connect in this discussion we've been having about racialized organizations with the sporting world? How might sports, how can we think about sports organizations as racialized organizations? And, and I'm sort of thinking just in terms of some kind of concrete examples, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the NBA and its franchises and the way they responded to player strikes over racial inequality this year, um, about the NFL and its response to Colin Kaepernick uh, both before 
this year um, when, of course, they've entirely blackballed him and expelled him from the league and done everything to destroy his career. And then suddenly after this summer's uprisings, you know, a lot of lip service being paid, uh, although, you know, newsflash, he still doesn't have a job in the NFL. Um, you know, and there's there are all sorts of other issues, including the dearth of black coaches in the NFL, um, the racialized exploitation of athletes in predominantly white institutions of higher education. You know, the list goes on and on. And there's there's nothing, no one area I'm asking you to focus on. But I'm just curious sort of how you might think about sport then as a site of racialized organizations. There's a whole bunch of ways. Uh, again, I want to I want to start with a caveat that I am not. Sports is not my area. Uh, I actually had a section on sport in, an, in a really, really early draft of this paper. And one of my friends who writes about sport was like, take it out. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, but I, w- I will actually start with their, I will actually start by talking about their recent paper. Uh, that, that colleague, that was Stephen Foy. And he and Rayshon Ray uh, recently published a paper in American Sociology in uh, American Journal of Sociology uh, that looks at announcers at NCAA tournaments and shows that the announcers, um, I'm, I'm giving a sort of a broad gloss of the paper, but it shows that the announcers are more likely to, depending on the skin tone of the player, more likely to describe light skinned players as brilliant and, you know, words attached to intelligence and skill and uh the darker uh skinned players are more likely to be described with animalistic bestial words right so there's one way that we think about um just athleticism and you know the separation between the physical and mental uh, that is mapped on, I think, broadly to organizations and how labor is portrayed in organizations. Right. So you talked about um, NFL, and I think if we think about coaching, right, and the dearth of black coaches in the NFL, I think that this is can be tied to that separation between. Um, who we think of in organizations as leaders and as able to, you know, control and corral and get other people to follow them and who we think of as workers and who should be, uh, controlled and corralled and, and following others. Um, I think, you know, if you look at who supports playing college players, there is a huge racial disparity in there that I think is, again, tied to whose labor is exploitable and who believes that people should be paid for their labor. Um, I think also, you know, there's broad cultural stereotypes are mapped onto sport quite frequently. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the reaction to to Kaepernick's uh, protest um, says a lot about again who who is considered who has the right to protest, who has the right to protest labor conditions, um, and who has the right to I mean, sort of just like protest full for their full humanity. 
So following up just a little bit um, here, we're we're recording this in late October 2020, sort of just days away from a contentious presidential election on the heels of these massive and powerful social rebellions and social upheaval against government tyranny across the board, really, but particularly in the United States. Um, And importantly for us, this is sort of... uh, in the midst of all of this has been this summer of mobilization amongst athletic laborers. And you alluded to this um, yourself as well. This is from the powerful mobilization that we saw in the WNBA and in the NBA to college football players fighting for much more say in their working conditions. From your perspective, and I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit. I, like Again, I know we're, you're, you're not a, a sociologist of sport, but I'd like to get your thoughts as an organizational theorist. Um, what have these movements meant for you? How do you see these the sort of broad labor movements playing out in sports as we go past the election and into, um, into the new year? Uh, it's funny because if there's anything that I, I pay attention to in sports, it's these kinds of movements. Um, I went into grad school thinking I was going to do social movements. That's what I, that's what I wanted to study. Uh, and at the end of my, my orgs paper, I, well, actually kind of all through the paper, I talk about movements. Um, I think movements have done more to, uh, change the distribution of resources in organizations than probably anything else. Um, and so when I, when I see these movements, um, it gives me a lot of hope. Uh, one, because of the influence they can have in other areas of life. Uh, two, because anytime workers exercise their power, um, to get more of it, I think that is a broad good. Um, so I think, I also think, you know, especially the college students here, I'm thinking of the students a few years ago at um, Mizu when they said they weren't going to play and the president stepped down shortly thereafter, if I'm correct. Yes, um, you I are, think, absolutely. Okay, I think the, that, um, College players especially have an immense amount of power. So, and they don't, they, they by and large haven't been using it. And so when I see, um, you know, the, the movements of college students that were happening this year about playing conditions and about playing under uh, COVID-19, or when I saw those movements at Mizu, um, it makes me it makes me hopeful because they can shift uh you know central to my my work is about how organizations distribute resources by race and especially college football um college sports is a really clear example of the unequal distribution of these resources by race and so when i see students uh fight for that for a better distribution of those resources or a more equal distribution of those resources. It, it makes me really hopeful. Um, and then I think, you know, when I see that tied to, you know, I've seen some estimates that say that the broader Black Lives Matter movement is now the largest social movement in U.S. history. 
um, that that stuff makes me hopeful, right? When you see uh, this happening in a whole bunch of different era areas, and I would also say that um, I think there was a reason, and I and I say this in the paper, there is a reason that the um, iconic, really iconic movements of the civil rights movement, like the Montgomery bus boycott or, you know, the Woolworth sit-ins, they manipulated organizational resources, right? And they made people think differently about those organizational resources. And their clever manipulation of organizational resources through, through the organization filtered up to the state and, and forced states to change laws that, you know, altered the sort of racial conditions of the whole country. And obviously, um, movements are contingent, and I have no idea where these movements are going to go. If we talk about the election in, the minute, in a minute, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic about that. Uh, but the movements themselves um, give me hope, right? I'm optimistic about the movements. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just been, I, I'm really appreciative of your explanation of kind of how you saw them using the resources available to them and, and sort of what we've done with sort of people we've interviewed on the podcast and some of our public pieces is, is kind of explore the the constraints under which they're working in, right? And that the, the sort of reasons why they have not always um, kind of united and kind of advocated for their own interests and kind of what hampers them to be able to do that. Um, though, of course, as we, I think we talked about this with Rick Westhead last week, you know, we're, we're totally not, we're not sort of sure where it's going to go because then the football season started and if players did not bout, then they needed to continue playing, which is sort of, is sort of another level of the constraints that they're working within. Um, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, sort of related to that, you know, so in light of all that you said about this social movement, BLM, and kind of this athlete activism, what do you make of the myriad statements of solidarity released by all the sports teams and the leaders within them, the white coaches, et cetera? And sort of how do you see these statements fit in within the theory of racialized organizations? Okay. So I want to be optimistic about statements of solidarity, but what I, in my theory, uh, there's this long standing theory in organizational theory about decoupling, and that's that the, the sort of short gloss on this theory is that organizations have to, um, you know, please outside constituencies that may or may not be customers, but I, you know, but so we can think here of Nike's, um, you know, protests against Nike's labor relations for, you know, drawing on, um, on, Global South labor and not paying them, right? And so Nike came up with a whole series. I mean, they still rely on Global South labor, but they came up with a whole series of sort of public relations statements to uh, gloss over that in certain ways. And I think these statements of solidarity are are that, right? They're a public relations move that is decoupled from the daily practices of an organization. 
And so what I mean by that is these, these, they're not alleviating the conditions of exploitation of the people working for them. Uh, and that, to me, is what solidarity would look like, right? Solidarity doesn't necessarily start with, you know, believing people outside of your organization's lives matter. It starts with treating the people that you have, like, direct control and power over um, as if their lives matter. And so I have been... Um, yeah, really pessimistic about the statements of solidarity. You know, so the the Washington football team was one of the first ones to put out a or put out. I don't know if they were one of the first. Excuse me, but they put out a statement of solidarity, and I was just like, "What are you talking about? Like, your entire business model is based on on like branding a racial slur, and to come out and use. You know, they've since changed the name, um, but have they like paid reparations or, or, you know, like uh, redistributed the resources or the profits they've made uh, for years of like selling racism. Um, and so I guess that's how these statements of solidarity fit my, fit the theory of racialized organizations. I know that there are some, uh, actually, I know more about businesses that aren't sports teams that have done more material things. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure what teams have done real material differences, you know, move beyond statements to make real material differences. Yeah. Well, um, let's, let's almost, I want to kind of almost try to theorize this because I I love how you put that, like what solidarity essentially has to be something material, right? It's not just this let's level of appearance, right. Or PR as you put it. Yeah. Um, is it possible within neoliberalism, like within the, the logic of the neoliberal corporation, is a solidarity statement, like, and this is why I mean to be, I, mean, I want to be, I'm trying to be theoretical, right? As obviously, like, in practice, they can put out a document that they call a solidarity statement. We all agree that that's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. But I mean, like, in terms of the definition you gave us, which is much more compelling, right? This idea that solidarity is something material that has to, actually transform within the organization and change the experiences of people's lives and, and what they have access to in terms of resources and opportunities and access within the logic of neoliberalism is a solidarity statement from a corporation even possible at all, or does it just contradict the entire project? So this is interesting and I've been grappling with this a lot based on some of the responses to my paper. And part of what I think, and I think the larger movement around prison abolition or a lot of the critiques I'm seeing of diversity and inclusion and critiques I myself have made, I am not exempt from this, right? But I think, I have been having this trouble dealing with the the contradiction between fundamental transformation and harm reduction. So I go to work every day and I would like to not be harassed at work. And under the current system, uh, I I have to go to work every day, right? And so to me, uh, making a worker's 
life easier under the system can be a form of uh, harm reduction. Maybe not solid. Maybe solidarity is not the word I would use there, but it can be a form of harm reduction that I don't think we should minimize unless we're willing to say that we think people should be working under really bad conditions. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I do think that that's important. Do I think that that will get to the type of social relations I personally and my politics would like to see? Absolutely not at all. Uh, again, this is a place that I'm like trying to think about with my work right now um, and writing, trying to write my way through because I don't have a good answer to it. Uh, but I, I, you know, uh, I'm thinking here of, of Wendy Brown's work on what, so Wendy Brown's work on, on asking for civil rights from the state when the state is often the person oppressing various groups. And so anytime you ask the state for those rights, you're actually legitimating your oppression. You're saying the state is a legitimate force <laughs> and mm -hmm. yep. The you know, and so I'm thinking of um, a lot of the work and a lot of the active activism around corporations and around um, you know diversity as as a similar process, right? So I did my dissertation on race and gender in the military, and I looked at people who were complaining about harassment in the military, and I found that whether it was race, gender, or mental health, that when they went to the military, the military typically punished them worse, right? So the military had these programs that were supposedly there to alleviate the problem, but when people accessed those programs, they ended up ostracized or kicked out of the military. And I think what I found, I didn't, I didn't know Brown's work at all at this time, but I think you know, what I found fits very, very clearly with Brown's work is that like, how can you go to the very place, unless you're organized, right? So I, I would say this is different if you're in a union, right? And, and everyone can withdraw their labor and risks, you know, destroying the organization. Um, that is a different thing. But as an individual, if you as an individual go and access these or ask for these rights, um, oftentimes things are going to get worse for you rather than better. Um, and so, yeah, I think I guess the short answer is harm reduction is important. It's not going to get us to where we need to be or where I think we need to be. Yeah, that's that's a terrific way of framing it. And I actually think that you're seeing this really similarly to the way we are right now. Uh, and before I get into that, I actually want to just say about Wendy Brown that there's a, I've just been listening. There's a terrific new episode of the Dig podcast with Daniel Denver uh, oh. with Wendy Brown that just came out uh, this week. And it's absolutely fabulous. So for anyone that's sort of interested in following up on this aspect of the conversation, I think that's probably a great place to turn. Um, but, but what I wanted to say in terms of what you were suggesting about harm, I like, I loved how you put that, the harm reduction versus kind of abolition, if you want to put in those terms, um, yeah. that's exactly what we have been grappling with in the context of college football, right? Because we have been making the claim yeah. in a lot of our public work recently, you know, our, our vanishing point, much like you're describing Victor, our vanishing point is actually abolition, right? It's the abolition <laughs> of football and college football, but those are really difficult things to contemplate, not just from the standpoint of just like the cultural imagination in this country and people's investment in this thing that is football, um, 
but also because of the structural conditions that make football important in people's lives, right? Like we'd be remiss to ignore the fact that people have sacrificed sometimes by the time they get to college, literally 13 years of head injury um, yeah. in order to get access to this thing that is otherwise denied to them in the society precisely because of structural racism. Um, and so to then just shut the door on that and say, well, no, you can't have football, but of course we're not actually ameliorating any of those other conditions in American society. Um, then you're just taking away what is actually a rational avenue of opportunity, even though it is an incredibly harmful and destructive one, but it, it's a reasonable thing for people to c pursue when there are so many other forms of constraint upon their lives. So you can't actually think about the abolition of football without thinking about a form of reparations for all of that harm that we're talking about here. And so it's a much larger project is what I'm trying to say in exactly the way that you're describing this as a much larger project, right? You can have this vanishing point that is something different than what you're looking for. But like in the day to day, that means that if we're talking about college football during the pandemic or at any other time, it is a harm reduction question. Right. It's like, yeah. let's talk about how these athletes can unionize, not because I think football is something that I ultimately want them to be doing, but I want good things for them, for these players. Yeah. Right. I want their health and safety and well-being. And in this moment, that organization that they can do together, that Missouri example you brought up, that's the hope for making their lives at least a bit better now. And we, that matters. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that that. Yeah, like I said, I've been struggling with it. I don't know the answer, but I I I don't think people should work in bad conditions on a day-to-day -day basis. And mm -hmm. I it's it's weird when I see people like seemingly not supporting that. Yeah, so we've we've been talking about a lot of these things that are sort of adjacent to um just like the political climate that we're in um right now um so i'd like to 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 segue into specifically talking a little bit of politics now and and i'd like to start off um with a question that i i've sort of been grappling with and thinking about um for the last month or so and that is like what the hell is going on with the the current administration's assault on critical race theory and it's not just rhetorical it's it's an actual tangible um war on um critical race theory and and it has an impact on anti-racist work at public institutions across the country and as a canadian i would say even it, it has a, a less manifest impact but an impact on anti-racist work being done at institutions even here so can you walk us through the president's recent um, executive order and, and what that means? Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with the caveat that I am not a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> although I, I've read the executive order um, and I know how some organizations have responded. Uh, and I wrote a piece in the Washington Post about the executive order. Um, but the, and we will be, just sorry to cut you off. We're going to be linking that piece for sure. So people yeah, definitely should check out that piece that Victor wrote. Yes. Okay. So the, so I think the assault on critical race theory, uh, why now I'm not sure it's the, the, although I would say that like, there's a whole group of public or semi-public intellectuals that have been 
sort of lobbing bad faith misunderstanding critiques at critical race theory for quite a while. Um, and I would say on both the left and the right, although the right, or, or in definitely some centrists too, um, the critiques are often from my read, like not, I, so I said they're bad faith, but they really misrepresent what critical race theory is. They conflate a lot of different traditions. So critical race theory is by no means the only tradition of race scholarship or even race scholarship that um, examines race critically. So there's a group of scholars who make a distinction between critical race theory that arose out of the legal movement and what they call race critical theory that uh, arose from sort of the black radical tradition that folks, yeah, that, you know, folks like, anyway, I don't need to get into that debate. Um, so, I, I kind of, the one thing I do want to get into one thing, cause you've, you've got, you just piqued my interest too much here. Can you spend a moment on the left, the, what you consider to be the bad faith left critiques of critical race theory? That's what I'm most interested in. So I think the bad faith less critiques of critical race theory uh, argue that it's identity politics or argue that it is um, in some way like not, you know, doesn't pay close enough attention to class. And this is all, always like really strange to me because if you look at sort of just the trajectory of, of like the concept of intersectionality or the trajectory of critical race theory as a whole. So the trajectory of intersectionality from uh, the Combe River Collective statement, um, they say literally in that statement, they're like, we agree with Marx. <laughs> on, so, like, like that is literally the sentence. And they're like, but Marx, you know, and Marxist, the Marxist left in some ways downplays the importance of race and structuring social relations. Or if you look at, um, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw or, or Richard Delgado's discussion of the genesis of critical race theory, critical race theory got its foothold in the academy by being connected to um, the class crits who were a group of leftist scholars talking about the ways that um, class relations structured U.S. law. Right. And they, they sort of created this opening for critical race theorists and provided space at their meetings. And like this group of folks is still going on. Like they, they had a meeting when I was at the University of Tennessee and at the law school at the University of Tennessee. And I went to the meeting. And so, um, so the idea that critical race theory like downplays or, or ignores class is just kind of weird to me. I, and so, so that's where I think uh, those those critiques on the left come from. Uh, on the right, they just typically like. I actually think on the right, I usually describe it as they describe any idea about race that they don't like as critical race theory. Um, and you know, it could be white privilege. It could be. I mean, diversity trainings came from like industrial management like not from critical race theory. So I don't understand how, and of course there are probably diversity trainings that use an idea like structural racism from critical race theory in the training, but like diversity trainings and critical race theory are just not the same thing. They don't have and those the are the same. good ones, right? Those are the good diversity trainings. Yeah. So like they're not, they're not, 
they're not the same thing. Um, and so uh, I don't know why it's come about right now, other than, you know, it's election time. It's been building in part of the broader discourse for a while. Um, and the now the impact is important. So the the broad reading, so some universities have stopped all diversity trading. Um, and my reading of the executive order, and again, I am not a lawyer, but my reading of the executive order was there is a cutout for class instruction. So if you are, so like I am teaching a class on critical race theory this semester, if you are um, in my class, my read of the executive order means I did not have to change what I was teaching, right? But um, it does mean folks are scared. I've seen reports of people uh, being disinvited from talks and trainings. Um, I've seen people being asked to rewrite their talks and trainings. Um, and I've seen universities pausing, halting, um, yeah, stopping their trainings. Now, I have my critiques of the trainings, right? The trainings, in many cases, there's good empirical research showing that a lot of the trainings are ineffective. Um, and a lot of the trainings, um, a lot of universities or a lot of corporations don't use the trainings that have sort of proven impact at diversifying. But to me, uh, there's a different, there's sort of a different worry here, less about the effectiveness of the trainings and more about what it means when the federal government shuts down an entire area of research-based speech, how they're framing it, whether I think they're getting the research right or not, um, through an executive order, what that means for its chilling effect on free speech, what that means for the funding of these organizations, because they tied it to federal funding and like every school almost gets some share of federal funding. Um, they tied it to federal funding. So what it means for speech, what it means for funding, um, and what it means for a general chilling effect on um, what people are willing to say and do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm really glad that you pointed out kind of um, how you nuanced it, right? That it's your point about how even though these trainings don't do what we would hope that they would do, the whole idea that this executive order is really shutting down the conversation and kind of essentially trying to negate all of the work, all of the research, but also the work that people have done um, to implement these policies and the hopes of like some semblance and sort of sort of a culture change. So I'm really glad that you sort of nuanced that for us. And, you know, to, to kind of talk a bit more about the sort of contemporary or the, the you know, current electoral moment, um, how do you kind of, how do I say, how do you kind of explain or kind of understand what's going on with the election and prospects for potential anti-racist work. In other words, can you share with us some of your invites, your insights about how this election election cycle has played out and what it reveals about the racist dynamics of the US? Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> so critical race theory tends to be like pretty pretty pessimistic um, because it's looking at sort of how structural racism changes and maintains itself. Rather than, you know, there's a, there's, I've, I've written sort of critiques of 
like progress um, in social science, racial progress in social science with uh, a number of people. And I think, so looking, so I said earlier that, you know, by some reports, the Black Lives Matter protests this summer were some of the largest on record. And, you know, it's, according to some people, the largest social movement that's happened in the U.S. If you look at, um, there's some survey research now showing strangely that um, there are some, that like majorities of white people actually, in some cases, more white folks than uh, black folks say that structural racism is like a fundamental problem in the U.S., from surveys this summer. Um, so, you know, those are kind of historically unprecedented things. Um, but what worries me about it is this research from Fabio Rojas and his colleague, whose name I'm forgetting, forgive me, um, on the collapse of the uh, anti-war movement when Obama was elected. And their argument is that the anti-war movement was a, a highly partisan movement. And although Obama continued or expanded the wars in certain ways, that because he was part of, you know, for lack of a better term, I know that there are like many, many factions on the left, but part of the team, um, that the, the larger movement could no longer get people into the streets. What I worry is that um, you'll see a similar thing if Biden is elected, is that people will say, ah, we got rid of Trump, just like racism was over once Obama was elected, racism is over again, uh, and we can go back to not worrying about this. Um, so that being said, uh, things would be much worse under Trump. Again, if we go back to the distinction between harm reduction and fundamental change, um, under Trump, uh, I think the I think the tendencies we've seen uh, towards sort of an explicit embrace of you know open white nationalism and um, the kinds of policies that uh, they have implemented at the border the the kinds of uh not just pro-police but pro-police violence policies that they have supported uh will will only increase under a trump presidency i can't see why they would they would decelerate or you know lay off um because I, I can't see why I, I think also things like the profound level of um, attempted and successful voter suppression will also increase, right? And so, um, yeah, so this is all speculative. I have no idea what's actually going to happen. Um, but I, yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Of course, we're all speculating here. Uh, what else? Yeah. What else could we be doing? But um, yeah, you pointed to some interesting dynamics because I, I mean, I certainly do not disagree with you about um, the very, very um, you know frightening prospects of another Trump um, 
regime, a new Trump mandate of any kind. Uh, yeah, I, I can only see it going really dark places uh, in this context. So, you know, I, I can only echo what you said. The, the one that's for me is more interesting to interrogate actually is is the the sort of Biden position, because mm-hmm. your analogy to Obama is very is interesting, and I think it makes sense. Uh, except here's what I'm wondering: in this in the case of Obama, Obama was the left ish, I would say, candidate <laughs> ish, in that primary. Yeah. Well, you know, at the time though, here's the thing: in in retrospect, ish underlining the ish part, but at the time. Yeah underlining the left part right i mean he that's why that movement was so powerful and that's why people got off the streets because it seemed like they had accomplished like mission accomplished right to to quote mm. George Bush, but it seemed like you you actually had elected the candidate that was going to do what you wanted so you didn't need to be in the streets anymore because right you would put that person in the corridors of power what seems maybe to be different to me in this moment is that we've just gone through, a, I mean, it's really weird because we've also, we, we went through an incredibly contentious primary uh, for the Democratic Party that was then interrupted by a, pan, a global pandemic. Uh, so it's like, it's really weird to reflect on now. I don't know how people kind of, and then we've had this summer of uprising, right? So like we feel kind of distant from that primary moment, but certainly in that primary moment, I mean, Biden felt like the the right neoliberal edge of the Democratic Party, right? And I think it was really yeah, yeah. clear to a lot of the people, the, pe- the very people who have been in the streets all summer. Uh, I don't think most of those people, in the way that they may have, th- those same people, if we had transported them back in time, might have seen Obama as a really hopeful figure. I'm not really, I mean, like Biden is just the best of two bad alternatives. And one alternative is horrifically bad. So Biden does seem goodish in that context (laughs) but i mean he doesn't seem like the figure who's going to accomplish the sort of structural change that i think a lot of people especially young people and that goes back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of where your optimism is right from this sort of social yeah right um young people understand that something dramatic has to change when it comes to climate, when it comes to racism, when it comes to capitalism. Like we basically have to turn the whole thing over and no one thinks that Biden's going to do that. I don't think that there's any illusion whatsoever. So my optimism in this moment, if there is any, is that I think that like Biden gets Trump out, which is good, but Biden also frankly is I think going to push people right back out in the streets, <laughs> um, not immediately, but because it's going to become clear right away that he's going to be imposing a neoliberal austerity that's going to do nothing to address racism, capitalism or climate change. And people are desperate at this point, and they understand that they can't just wait him out. I mean, I hope you're right. I think some of the dynamics that you outlined there are definitely different than they were under Obama. And I think um, some of them, some of the dynamics that you're talking about are actually driven by disillusionment with (laughs) uh, Obama not being what people thought they, he was going to be. Um, And so, so yeah, I mean, I I hope you're right. Um, Yeah. Cause the alternative is not, Great. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just like you were saying earlier, I'm just not at all convinced that in the event that Biden gets elected, which I'm not hopeful for that. I, I don't I don't know, maybe I'm just kind of defending my my defending myself in case Trump Trump gets reelected because last time was just so shocking. But I'm just there's very little evidence to kind of show that there's gonna be a culture change. 
after if Biden were to get elected, like the whole like, you know, vote Biden, vote out racism, like that's not going to happen for all the reasons that you laid out for us. Right. It's not necessarily about the people that are in power. It's of the organization of the government. It's not just in it. It's of it. Um, Do you, Victor, do you have a prediction? For this election, obviously, this means not that we're, you know, I mean, we're, we're not Nate Silver over here uh, who make, a, well, you know, we don't make a fortune wrongly predicting uh, presidential politics. But I think that if, if he can get away with that, then we can at least just take a stab at predicting what happens. What do you think? I really don't. I, I have a kind of like. I feel like I didn't have a prediction for the last election either. Like I, I, in the sense that I was, I was just not hopeful and maybe that is a, a reflection of the choices we have. Um, but yeah, I don't have a prediction, but I like, I hope we don't have four more years of Trump. I mean, just the, the, I mean, just the, the literal toll of death under his coronavirus handling is like, when would this possibly end if uh, he's in charge for another four years? So I don't, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm hopeful that it won't be him. I, I think uh, I might speak for everyone uh, on the show when I say we are, I think all hopeful for that um, here on the end of sport, uh, because certainly uh, the the atrocities that have happened over the the past four years and and accelerated during the pandemic have been a little bit much, and and I think I am also a little bit hesitant to think that if we no longer have um, Trump, we also have this sort of changed society. I think that's not going to happen, and we're going to start or we're going to see many of the same things we've been seeing. Um, for the past four years under a Biden administration too, um, just not as um, potently dangerous and infectious um, as the Trump administration. So, Victor, I would like to just thank you so much for coming on the show, for providing your brilliant, brilliant um, thoughts and talking about your work. Um, It's been super awesome. So just thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or check out our website at www.endofsport.com, where you can find details for our Patreon to support the show even more. Thank you.